0: check. One, two. Go! Go! Curious about real estate? Yes! Then you've come to the right place. Get the knowledge you need. Get over the fear and get started. This is the Michael Quarles Real Estate Show with
1: your host, Michael Quarles. Hello, everybody. Michael Quarles with the Michael Quarles Real Estate Show. Today, I have a guy on with us who I think I'm going to find fascinating. He deals in mobile home parks. And if you have listened to me for very long, you realize or you will know that I'm not a mobile home guy. I like single family houses. I like buying them and selling them at as is value. I don't like rehabbing them, although I've rehabbed too many of them in my life. I'm not a big apartment guy, although I've bought apartments before. I like single families. So the idea of mobile home parks it's fascinating because it's a whole different world, and you're gonna listen to him. His name is Kevin Bupp. So, Kevin, welcome to the show, and tell us about yourself.
0: Okay, I've uh, I've been investing in real estate now since uh, since I guess 1999 or so. I'm, t- I'm trying to calculate the years in my head. I was uh, I was 19 at the time. It was uh, a couple of years after I graduated high school. I'm 36 today, and so how many years is that? You guys can do the quick math. I won't do it and, and get it wrong, but I've been investing for quite some time. I've uh, Got my start, like a lot of people do in single-family homes, uh, buying and selling homes, wholesaling homes. Did that for a number of years. Uh, was quite successful at it. Built a pretty large portfolio up. Got into apartment investing. Uh, this is pre-2008 recession. Um, owned a big portfolio of single-family homes and apartment buildings. And then uh, lost a lot of it during the recession in 2008. Go back into real estate after the recession, start buying mobile home parks, which is what we focus on today. So, we are mobile home park investors. We own hundreds of spaces throughout numerous different states here on the East Coast, and uh, we love what we do, we have a lot of fun with it. So, I am a mobile home park guru, I guess you could say. <laughs> mobile home park guru. So, yeah, I hate that, I hate that word. I, I say that jokingly. I can't stand the word guru. So, okay, so I, I say that as a joke, guys, just I, so you I, know.
1: Yeah, I, I hate the word, too, because it's it, it doesn't give us the right title. As if you're I, like feel like I, I, I feel like people. it's degrading. I just want mean, to help people. Yeah,
0: I'm not selling snake oil or anything like that. So I feel like gurus, that's what they do. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but, then now, but mobile homes. Now, I was raised in a trailer. So it was this, for everybody laughing at me now, it was this, I want to say, like 60-foot long, 10-foot, 12-foot wide thing. My parents had parked it on the side of a hill, literally. And I think there was a bedroom in the front, a bedroom in the back. I still have a, a scar on my forehead because it had a step up into a room. And when I was a little, little guy, I couldn't step up that tall. So I, I tried and I hit the corner of something. And so I, I got this ugly scar on my head. And so tell me what a mobile home is. Cause I'm, I was raised in a trailer. So, is, what's what's a mobile home? Well,
0: same same exact thing. I mean, it's a it's a home that is manufactured in a factory. I mean, uh, and now they're a little they make them larger now than probably the one you lived in. But we probably have parks that have the exact same size trailer or mobile home, whatever you want to call it. The same thing. Some people call it a manufactured home. Some people, I mean, you know, modular home is is, is kind of a hybrid of that. You know, but either way, these things are made in factories they are transported on axles that have wheels on them they are pulled behind typically a big rig truck sometimes they're pulled you know you know taken in sections to wherever they're going to end up and they're put together some are just taken as one whole section but either way they are transported to a park to a plot of land they're transported to where whoever that end user is is going to live in it so we own mobile home communities so we own the entire community uh, sometimes we actually own the, the, the homes that are in the community or some of the homes that are in the community. And, and other times we have just the, the dirt, I guess you could say, the lots themselves that we lease out uh, for a monthly rate. You know, Typically long-term tenants, people have lived there years and years and years, and they just pay us basically rent to keep their trailer on our lot. And we maintain the dirt and the infrastructure. And then, like I said, we also have, we have our own rental units as well. Sometimes we just happen to acquire Trailers that come along with these mobile home parks because they were rentals prior to the uh, are taking over the ownership, and so we maintain maintain them as the rentals, or we turn around and sell them all for cash, and uh, and just again turn around and rent the lots. Our whole business plan is revolving around renting the dirt because you have little overhead and little maintenance when you're just maintaining the infrastructure itself. You don't have you know the the, the typical headaches that go along with rental properties like the you know, the toilets, termites and, you know, the tenants and all that kind of stuff, you know, because you're you're literally just renting the dirt to them. So that's it. That's, that's what we do.
1: That's it. That's all you do. It seems much bigger than that. I'm I'm pretty
0: big. I'm instantly thinking about (laughs)
1: eviction. Like what do you do if someone doesn't pay their, their rent fee?
0: Yeah, that's, that's the, that's one of the beautiful things about the business. Number one is uh, very rarely do you get into a circumstance where someone that owns the home themselves, you know, to where they own the trailer and they're just paying the lot rent, to where they don't pay that lot rent fee because it's normally a fraction of whatever the you know whatever the cost of normal living is in that town that they're living in. Right. So if it's, um, for instance, I'll give you an example. We have a park up in North Carolina in the Raleigh area. Our lot rent in that park is two hundred forty dollars a month. Well, there is nowhere else in that town that they could ever live for that cheap. And it costs about $3,000 to $3,500 to move that, that trailer that they have. So if they don't have the money to pay that lot rent, they sure as heck don't have the money to move that trailer off that lot. And so what happens is they either figure out a way to come up with that lot rent or they abandon the trailer. They just leave it. And when that happens, we you know depending on what state it's in, we have the ability as the, the park owner – to after a certain period of time to go and get an abandoned trailer uh, uh, title for that home and, and to get it retitled into our name, and we take ownership of it, and then we'll turn around and rehab it and sell it off to someone else. So, But it, it very rarely happens. When they actually own the homes themselves, they got a lot at stake. I mean, they have the home. I mean, it's theirs, and they can't, they, don't, they can't afford to take it with them. And so most of the time, they can scrape together one way or another enough money to keep that lot rent current. So it's very rare that you have to actually evict somebody that's a uh, that's in a home that they own and they're just paying a lot of rent.
1: I I would think so. And it's not like they can like leave all of a sudden either, like uh, someone that maybe is occupying an apartment building or a home. Oh,
0: they like, can. I yeah, guess, yeah, yeah, it happens.
1: <laughs> I, I can just, just envision or imagine, like, all of a sudden this truck backs up to this mobile home and, and starts pulling it away, and it's like,
0: well, what are you doing? People? Well, yeah. It's not that easy. These things are pretty darn heavy. I mean, you're talking you're talking a few tons. I mean, so uh, if, if you took a a normal pickup truck and tried to hook it up to one of these, the pickup truck would would fall apart. It would it would break in half. So there's specialty you know big rig type trucks uh, like tractor trailers that are designed to tote these things around. And so it's not your typical truck that would just come in and, and haul it away. These aren't like camper RVs or anything like that. These are you know 70 80 feet long. 14, 16 feet wide, um, single wide homes and sometimes double wides and double wides are there. There's two sections to them. They're big and you just can't, it's not easy just to get up and move them. And and actually they're not sitting on the wheels anymore. They get delivered on wheels, but they're actually, they're, they're, they're uh, actually most of the time they're on some sort of, some sort of a foundation to where they're tied down with metal straps. The wheels are off. The axles are taken off. I mean, so these things are semi permanently, you know, set on that ground. I mean, they're not, I say semi-permanently because it's not permanent. They can be moved again, but it's a big process and it has to be done by experts, experts that do that on a regular basis. It has to be permits obtained and things like that to make it happen.
1: I guess houses can be moved if we want them to be. Sure.
0: If you want them to be, that's a big, pro- that's even a bigger process. Right. Even I um, bigger pro-
1: I, re- I remember I bought a mobile home and we wanted to sell that not as a motor vehicle in California. They're licensed as a motor vehicle. So we, we wanted to sell it as real property. So we went and had FHA straps put on it to actually anchor it down. So it would qualify for financing. Um, mm-hmm. so it is, it is a job to undo all of that. Um, mm-hmm. earlier you mentioned something about it's typically the least expensive thing in a city or a place to live. And my, my thought process went down to a little town in California called Carpinteria that I wanted to buy, uh, a re, not a retirement, but a second home in. And I saw this ad for, I think it was $400,000 for this nice looking place. And I went to, because $400,000 in the city was, was like half the price. So I went to look at it and it was in a mobile home park. It was actually a, a double wide mobile home and Absolutely should not cost $400,000, but because it looked at the ocean, uh, people could fetch that kind of money. Sorry, got off on a tangent. Why mobile home parks and not like commercial buildings or apartment buildings? What was the fascination behind um, a mobile home park for you?
0: Yeah, so I mean, I, I like commercial in general and, uh, I, I'm i I'm a guy that likes to focus on one thing and become the expert in it. And so, like I had mentioned before, I'd owned apartment buildings, have experience with, with housing in general. That's all I've invested in were, was housing. And so I know housing. I understand the laws that revolve around housing and having tenants. And so, once I jumped back into the real estate game in you know 2010 2011, um, I kind of took a look back at my business and saw what worked and what didn't work you know prior to the recession. And I really liked the apartment business. I wish I would have focused more of my energy on buying more apartments versus single family homes, just because it's it's more scalable. At least from from my business model, it's more scalable to get to a point where you have substantial passive income streams from your real estate. And it can be done with single family. It just takes a lot of a lot of effort and a lot of energy and a lot more time to do that. Anyway, I got back into the real estate game and I started looking at apartments in, in certain markets that I knew were strong and I know what type of returns I wanted to hit. And so in my mind, I really liked the number of an 18 to 20% cash on cash return with the ability to have upside on top of that. And so to get quality assets in the apartment space, in starting 2011 and up until today, the apartment space is very it's very competitive. It's kind of the it's the flavor of the day. Everyone wants to buy apartment buildings, and so I wasn't seeing the quality assets at the right prices that would have given me the returns I wanted to receive. And so I started looking at other options, and the other options became mobile home parks. And so I met some individuals that were in the in the space and uh, kind of picked their brain about the business. I didn't I really didn't know anything about mobile home parks at all. I mean I knew what they were but I didn't know enough about them to make a decision whether I even had an interest in in investing in them. And once I learned about them, it just kind of made sense to me. There were some unique aspects to mobile home parks that didn't necessarily exist with apartment buildings. Um, One of them being is that they've got a huge barrier to entry and that they're not being built anymore. In fact, there's only, I think there's only a few that were built in 2015 and 2014 as well. And there's actually more going, they're going away faster than they're being built. And so there's a, Ever dwindling amount of supply that's out there on the market, and and so you don't have to worry about the idea of buying a park and having someone, a new developer, come in down the road and build another one and, and create competition for you. So you don't have to worry about that. What you do with apartments, what you do with housing and things like that. And so I thought that was pretty interesting, and it it also serves the demographic, you know, the low end demographic that I'm used to serving. I mean, all the homes. And all the apartments that I've ever owned have always been in the you know the lower income scale and not not a lot of like you know war zone type stuff but but you know blue collar hard working type individual type housing right and so mobile home parks offer a uh, unique uh, kind of a unique option for that demographic in that when you start looking at like our average mobile home park you know if we have a rental in it <clears throat> like we have some parks in in Atlanta, for instance, we have really nice three bedroom single wide homes these are newer homes with like vinyl siding shingle roofs. And they're in a really nice community. They rent for 595 a month. These three bedrooms. The comparable apartment in that market at 595 a month is a war zone. And so the people that are searching in that price that price point at 595 that have a family that have children that want to live in a safe place, they have the option of either living in a somewhat of a war zone. Or they have the option of living in a community like ours, to so where they have the ability at some point to own that home. Because we do creative rent-to-own type options, they can own that home. They live in more of a community type setting. They have a yard. Um, they can put Christmas lights outside. They have, you know, you know, pull-up parking pads for their cars that pull up right in front of their home. And you know, so it's it's a more attractive setting for those that are in that lower income bracket to. Number one, live and, and, and you know, be in a safe place with their family, but also two, to have the option of actually achieving that dream of home ownership, which everyone wants, right? And so, typically, that demographic would never, ever even think that they would ever be able to own a home. Well, now they can. And so, we like to serve that that lower income demographic. Now, we look for hardworking people that are good people, you know, that have clean backgrounds. I mean, we still do background checks. You know, no evictions, no felonies. You know, you got to have steady employment. We check employment. We check your past rental history and things like that. So we're just looking for good, solid people that are looking for a chance and looking for a safe place to raise their family. And that's what we can do with mobile home parks. And so it's a cool niche. You know, on top of that, it makes, you know, if if you buy them right, just like any asset, if you buy them right, they can, you can hit home runs and you can get huge returns with them. And so, you know, we've been able to buy parks that have been able, you know, in markets that we like that have been able to achieve those 18 to 20% or higher. A lot of times, higher. Most of the time, higher. Cash on cash return, and uh, I, I wasn't able to achieve that with buying apartments in the markets that we're currently buying in.
1: Explain to the audience what cash on cash return means.
0: Basically, the amount of uh, uh, the amount of return that you're getting on the the money that you're putting, the, the cash that you're actually putting into the deal, the, the return you're actually getting on the cash you're putting into the deal. So, if you, the simple way to put it is if you're buying a, a park, let's say it's a ten cap park, you're, you want to buy it on a ten cap. That means that it's, it's, it's $100,000 NOI on a yearly basis is what, uh, you know, is what you're going to achieve with that, which means it'll be a million dollar price point. Well, in that situation, you're paying off. If, you if you bought it for all cash, you'd be receiving a 10% cash on cash return. Now, once you add leverage into the picture, depending on how much leverage you put in there, whether it's 10, 20, 30% down, you've got to determine what kind of rate you have and things of that nature, amortization terms. And then you start you start getting a a much higher yield on your on your cash that you're putting in if you're putting leverage on that deal. So instead of paying that million dollars cash for it, if you put hundred thousand dollars down, two hundred thousand dollars down, your cash on cash return is going to be much higher than that ten cap that you're buying that property on in. I could run some you know, math math for you, uh, Michael, if you'd like, but I mean, it's just it's basically the easy definition for you is it's the amount of return that you get on the cash that you're putting into the deal. And it, and it's typically much higher if it's levered. We lever everything. We don't buy things for cash. It's just we, you know, there we look to buy it at 10 cap. That's kind of like the mark we look to buy it is like a 10 or 11 cap on a park. But, in order to hit that eighteen to twenty percent cash from cash return, we've got to put leverage on it there's no way we'll ever be able to achieve that anytime soon by buying it for all cash
1: now on your on this leverage is it seller financing is it traditional financing? Tell me about the financing vehicles that you're finding out there for folks that want to invest in parks
0: Yeah, we do everything. I can tell you the last couple of deals that we've uh, that we, that we've done they were actually owner financing um it's just it's just kind of how everything worked out with those two deals they were both value add deals they were much struggling operationally and uh, both the owners were were somewhat elderly. They'd owned the parks for a long time. They owned them free and clear. And so owner financing, it worked out for two reasons. It worked out number one, because both these owners would have had massive, uh, massive capital gains exposure to uncle Sam if they were sold for cash. And they didn't really even know what to do with the money. If they would have gotten all cash, right. They, didn't, they really didn't have anywhere else that they wanted to put it. And so, and the second reason is they were struggling operationally in both these parks. And so they were, they were just being mismanaged, and so in a bank's eyes, they weren't necessarily secure investments, right? They, they weren't secure collateral yet, and so they would have been really hard to get financing. We would have been able to get financing on them, but it wouldn't have been all that attractive on our end uh, from the terms. Right. And and so we made it just it became a win win. We 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 negotiated good owner financing with the seller that met their needs and their demands, it met ours, it let us hit our returns, and it it gave us some breathing room so that we weren't forced to take on, you know, uh, what I call expensive debt. Like on those deals, they would have probably been short-term debt, not hard money, but it would have been higher rate, shorter amortizations, significant amount down. And uh, so it worked out for both of us. But now, if it's a stabilized deal, I mean, if it's a stabilized deal where it's 80 to 85% or more occupancy and it's in a good marketplace it's got strong demand for 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 rentals or for housing you know especially low-income housing then there's i mean there's there's a lot of opportunity to get financing you can go to local banks i mean if it's in a small town you go to small town banks you know, regional banks do financing on mobile home parks and then there's national lenders as well even fannie mae and freddie Mac have some loan programs for for mobile home parks and so you know the rates are as good as the the quality of the asset that they're financing. so there's some very attractive thirty year amortization. I'm talking thirty year amortization, ten year balloon, you know somewhere probably in the five percent rate range for high quality stabilized parks in good markets. Now that changes if you're looking at a mobile home park in a rural market, right? I mean, if it's in a rural market, now the national lenders probably don't have an interest. You're probably going to have to resort to like a local bank, you know, a small town bank. And it's going to be on a case per case scenario. And and what what we see a lot of times is on these smaller parks that aren't being done by national lenders, what you'd be expected to put down is somewhere in the range of like 30% down. Uh, your rate's probably going to be in the 6 or 7% range. It's going to be a a 20 year amortization and probably a 5 year balloon. So, but it's, I mean, it's, it's definitely not hard to get in finance. I guess the hardest part about it is a lot of parks are owned by mom and pops. And if it's a mom and pop owner and they haven't done a good job of keeping their books and they haven't done a good job at operating this thing, well then it's going to be a struggle for the bank to wrap their mind around. What the heck's happening here operationally? And why should we even loan you money on this thing? Because it is a struggling asset. And so that's a lot of times that, that opens up the door for owner financing discussions. And that's typically try to ha- how we try to work into those owner financing discussions, especially if it's a park that is struggling financially. Right. I have two questions. When
1: you have a mm-hmm. – and I don't know which one to ask first, so I'm going to ask them both kind of at the same time. When you find a park sure. that may be struggling from a record-keeping perspective – so you, it would be harder for a lender to loan on that that, that asset. Mm-hmm. What are you looking at? Is it is totally experience that you know that if you have so many units that these costs should be within this percent range, or or how are you finding the answers to those things? And then and the second question, and you pick either one you want. How do you actually find
0: the park in the first place? Gotcha. Okay. Well. We can talk about the operational side, like how we identify those problems and um, how do we know that we you know, might be able to fix them. I think that's what the question right. was. And so, you know, we, uh, there's kind of general rules of thumbs that you can use as far as like what the overall operational expenses should be on a park on a yearly basis. And, and a lot of that has to depend on. How many rental units there are in the park, you know, because if you have rental units that like, you know, we, the park owner own, then there's going to be a repairs and maintenance cost that goes along with those because you're going to have turnover and rehabs and things like that. You know, utilities play a big role in this. Some parks, you know, the utilities, meaning the water and the sewer, that's actually included in the lot, meaning that the landlord pays it. Well... That expense can get wildly out of control if if you know the tenants aren't required to pay for it because then they are very wasteful and if their toilet flappers are leaking and things like that. So we look for numbers that are are just kind of out of whack based on the little bit of knowledge we know about that park. So if we see a park that has some rental units in it, you know maybe it uh, maybe the the water is actually paid paid for by the landlord. Then we know that it should probably be running just again using quick and dirty rules and thumbs. It should probably be running somewhere in like the 50 percent. Uh, expense range of the gross income, you know, gross yearly income. And if we look at their profit and loss statements and see that either it's way less than that or it's way higher than that, then we know there's a problem. If it's way less than that, that means that they're padding their books and they're not being transparent and disclosing everything. You know, I mean, if, if the repairs and maintenance, if, if they got, if they have 25 rentals in the park, and the repairs and maintenance for the the previous year was only four thousand dollars, they're lying. <laughs> you know, so. Uh, and then if we see that, you know, maybe the expenses are way higher than that. We just had a park we purchased recently where this this was the case. The expense ratio was like 85 percent. I'm I'm talking like this guy and he's been owning this park for he's been running it for like 30 years. And his expense ratio was like eighty five percent it should have been like fifty percent right and so right away my my you know bell went off, and i 'm like what what the heck's happening here there's something to, to why his repairs and maintenance were one hundred and twenty three thousand dollars last year for for thirty rental homes that were in this park and so it allowed me to dig in deeper and ask questions and on that part, we identified that they basically had no front end no front end end filtering system for for new residents coming in. So they weren't doing background checks. They weren't doing credit checks. If they had the money to move in, if they had the first month's rent and the security deposit, they let them move in. And so what was happening is they were basically turning units on average every four to five months. And they weren't just turning units. Basically, someone will move in. They may pay a month or two, and then they would have to evict them. Mm -hmm. And then they would have to rehab the trailer and then release it again. And so they were going through this vicious cycle for years and years and years of turning these things. And it just was costing a ton of money, and it wasn't necessary. And so I I I, I knew immediately that we could go in there. And just put a put a front end system in place that had requirements and qualifications you know for any new tenants coming in and I could tell you that over the past three months of owning this park that um, our NOI for the past three months basically equals the NOI of this park owner's uh, of 2015 you know, or 2014, actually, of his entire NOI. Just by making those small changes and eliminating those additional costs, we like put the brakes on you know, all this money flying out the door. And so there was other things to that park as well. They had uh, additional workers in this park that were paid a salary that I don't know what they did. I still don't know to this day what they really did. Uh, for what they got paid for. And so we immediately fired them. And, you know, so just things like that, we knew we could cut the fat out and make this thing run a lot leaner. In fact, it's, it took us about two months to do that on that park. And literally we got it, we have it running to where we're probably going to be at about a 50% expense ratio um, for this next calendar year. And uh, it took a matter of two months, It's some simple changes. And now we're running nice and smooth and we're making money.
1: So. And they would have never seen the ability to do that, what you just described. So the, you know, I
0: think what, I, yeah, I think what happened is that the owner's older. He, he's a really smart guy. Uh, he's, in, he owned a, um, a big law firm in DC, you know, so he's, a, he's an intelligent, educated guy, but he bought this park. 31 or 32 years ago, had it for a long time. And probably back then things were a little different, right? You know, back then, 32 years ago, you could probably just plop a sign out. You got, you know, it was in a, back then it was somewhat of a smaller town. You know, you could probably get good quality people just, just from doing that, putting the sign out. And it wasn't that big of a deal, you know, back then maybe, you know, people were a little bit more honest than what they are today or they weren't hiding as much as they are today. I don't know if things were that different, but either way, it probably worked well for him. For a number of years to where he was making money, doing the exact same system he had in place. But at some point, things started changing to where he did not adapt with the times and it, it started hurting him because I, I can tell you that the last the, the three years of financials we looked at were very poor. I'm talking like he never made more than... He, the park should make about, about $120,000 a year you know, net. And uh, he never made more than $35,000. Um, and, and, and most of that had to do with him turning units left and right, and so he was just basically bringing bad people in, kicking bad people out, bringing bad people in, kicking bad people out. And uh, at some point, it might have been different, but whenever that changed for the worse, uh, he just never adapted to the new ways. But it was as simple as this: running background checks. That's it. You know, he never charged application fees. Now we do. We charge the thirty-dollar application fee. That's what it costs us to run your background, your credit. You know, that sometimes that just turns people right. away. If they're if they're dead if they're deadbeats, right. they they're not going to spend thirty dollars. Right. To uh, for me to find out that they're deadbeats, and so just those little things like that immediately turn away the deadbeats that might have shown up and uh, and, and moved in there in the first place. Right. So I know myself. One
1: of the reasons I I don't like rentals or passive income. It's not that I don't like them. I just know that I'm a bad landlord, meaning that I don't I don't contribute the amount of time that I should contribute to them, and so they don't mm-hmm. produce what they could produce for somebody else who does do that. So if someone's professionally managing a building that I have may have owned in the past, they'll probably make more money just because they're professionally managing it. And, and I don't give it that effort. I, I like massive income. So I, I, I enjoy flipping houses. So I can see that you could pick up deals where someone is mismanaging or, or not contributing enough energy to managing it correctly. But how do you find them?
0: We do the same thing you do, Michael, with in terms of uh, direct marketing. I mean, we have we have about 100, probably about 110 or 115 different markets, and these aren't like necessarily major metros, but we've got different markets that we've identified based on population, based on economic trends, based on job growth, just based on the quality of living, you know, the demand for affordable housing. So we have all these parameters that we look for, and so we have these markets typically on the eastern half of the US, right? So we, if you drew a line down the middle of the country, everything we prospect for is on the eastern half of the US, and we stay out of the New England states. We really don't go above Pennsylvania. And, you know, so we have markets that we direct, we direct mail to, we cold call, you know, we deal with brokers and those are the three main ways. But I can tell you that our direct efforts typically yield us better results than going with brokers. And I know a lot of people will just deal with brokers solely uh, and, and uh, that's all they'll do. But we do a lot of direct mail campaigns. We do a lot of cold calling and uh, we found that that really works for us. But we're doing small, small targeted mailings and, and you know, we'll have like our mailing list, it's taken the years to build it and it's very niched down so we know exactly we know everything about that park in terms of how big it is what the previous owner paid for it when they bought it some markets we even know their age of the owner because we can find that information out we know the strength of that market we know that you know there is a demand for for mobile home parks in that market or mobile homes or affordable housing and so we'll direct mail to them and we've got i think about 2,500 people on our list now and we continually just hammer them left and right um, with mail with phone calls, and Sooner or later, we just our, our goal is to get to them and get in front of them at the right time when it's time to sell. So um, now that doesn't mean just because they call us back that it's going to be a deal. You know, a lot of these a lot of people either have higher expectations of what their property is worth versus what it really is worth, uh, and we can never come to a deal because of that, or maybe we just missed it in timing. You know, maybe maybe someone else beat us to the punch. But um, we 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 do we take those calls, we talk to the owners in person, build a rapport with them, we try to find the ones that. Um, which is pretty, it's pretty common. You know, a lot of mom and pops own these things still. These things that were, they were built 35 years ago. The original owner still owns them. And now they're getting old. They're getting tired. But you know, the unique thing that we look for is that these owners haven't maybe raised the rents in 10 or 15 years, which is very common. You know, they've, they've become friends with the residents that live there. So they haven't really enforced you know, rent collections as much as they should have, and you know things like okay. that—the simple operational changes that we can go in and fix.
1: I, and uh, I do have a rental in, um, I think, North Carolina, and the people have been there for years, and they pay their rent late every month. So we we send them, you know, a bill for that. And the six years that they had been there prior prior to our ownership, they had never received a bill from the landlord for late rent, making mm-hmm. how much. Did the owner lose by not teaching their tenant to pay rent on time? Absolutely. It's an enormous amount of money that people just don't don't really understand. That in the business of especially passive income, we, we have to count everything. Sometimes that late rent is viable and valuable.
0: Yeah. I like I like late fees. I mean they add up to be a lot, especially when you have a community that has a hundred, you know, hundred plus residents living in it and, and twenty of them pay late. I mean that's a That's a substantial amount of money at the end of the year. And so, you know, that's one thing we do when we go into a a park, when we take it over, we end up losing some residents because we do this. But when we go in, we figure we just try to cut the fat right away. And like, you know, not that we're you know coming in and bullying people around, but we have rules, we have guidelines that we work by. Our business is not scalable unless we apply all these rules and guidelines to every single community that we have. And so when we go in, uh, in both these last acquisitions, kind of didn't really have they would take partial payments, you know, the rent could be if it could be a couple of days late, they would charge a late fee. And you know, that's that gets out of control very quickly. That's not scalable. And so right when we went into both these communities, we said, look, rent's due on the first, it's late on the sixth. There's an X amount of dollars due for a late fee if received on the sixth or after that. On the sixth, we file the depending on the state if it's a three day notice, a five day notice, or ten day notice, depending on what state it is, we file that notice. And then once that time passes, of that notice, we follow the eviction. Like there's no gap. There's no, and, and you don't, you can't bring us partial payments. Like we will not accept that. So if you show up in the office and say, I've got 300 today, I'll bring 300 next week, bring it all. I'm not going to be your bookkeeper. You know, I'm not going to, you know, be your savings account because you can't manage your money. You got to bring it And So we end up losing people every time that we go into a community because you get those people that just, they can't adapt. They just, they literally don't know how to adapt and they have never been taught how to, you know, keep a, a balance, a checkbook or anything like that. And so you know, we lose them, but we knew that at some point we'd probably lose them anyway. Right. And so we might as well get rid of them now and find the good people that can take their place and can pay on time and can follow rules. Right. So.
1: I, I find that you know when you teach someone to procrastinate, that's what you get is you get a bunch of procrastinators. Yep. And um, that's extremely expensive. And and what people don't realize, they think, is the the cost of collecting rent when you collect half of it is more than twice the cost of collecting at one time. Mm -hmm. And so just have a rule and stick to it. So systemization is a great thing. What's your optimal size for a unit, you know, a park?
0: 10 units, 50 units, 100 units? About about 50 is the minimum that we'll look at if it's it's in a market that we don't own anything else in, okay? Now, if we we have a park in the market already and, and, you know, maybe a 25 or 30-space park just happens to come available down the road, it's a mile down the road, and it's a good park, and it's, uh, you know, uh, got solid infrastructure in place, and we can actually – share our management between the two parks, the one we already own in that park. Then we would look at acquiring something smaller. But really, what we're really spending most of our energy on are 50 space parks plus in size. I mean, really, the, the number that I really like is like 80 spaces or larger. Because at that point, you really, you start getting some a massive scales of economy, both from a management standpoint, you can afford to pay a manager, you can get a better manager by paying them more so you can get a better quality manager there at the community. You know, advertising dollars go a lot further. And a lot more of an impact when you do small things like rent increases every year of three or five percent you know much larger impact when it's 80 spaces versus 40 or 50 spaces and so we like bigger parks but you know 50 spaces can make a lot of money as well um, one of the recent parks we purchased was 52 spaces and that's the one in uh i told you it was running like an 85 percent expense ratio we brought down to 50 that that park makes a lot of money based on what we paid for it i mean it's I think our, our return already, our cash on cash on that one based on the, you know, the amount we put down, I think we're like 26% cash on cash return and we'll probably be over 30% after year one. So just with doing some, some minor changes on it. So small parks can make a lot of money as well.
1: That's not a bad return. If, Cause if I do 30, divide 30 into 100 in into three and a third years, you get your money back, right? Yep. Exactly, so, exactly. I, I passed math in, in school. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, in the in my business, from the wholesaling perspective, we have a lot of wholesalers. So a wholesaler will put a, a contract on a piece of property, not have the ability to buy the piece of property. Find someone, another investor, who will buy that contract for a percentage mm-hmm. of the potential profit. Does Does it work the same way in the mobile home park industry? Or do you not... Ever buy a contract from somebody else?
0: I've never bought a contract from somebody else. You don't see it happen that often, only because you're talking about large. I mean, the dollar sizes are, I mean, the, are so much larger. I mean, not many people have a million dollars cash laying around to buy a a contract on a million dollar park. I'm sure it happens. I'm sure it does, but uh, I've never purchased one that way, and I've never flipped the park. Now, I have. I have flipped uh, apartment buildings before, and I, I we flipped uh, probably the biggest one we did was. I think it was a a million and a half dollars, uh, maybe a little bit bigger than that. And and we flipped the contract on it for cash. And, you know, that was, but I think that was, uh, you know, those are anomalies. I don't think they happen all that often because you've got, you've got such a small time frame to find that person. And you're literally looking for that needle in the haystack of that person that can, number one, have that type of cash readily available. Number two, perform their necessary due diligence on that property before they buy Because doing due diligence on an apartment building or a mobile home park, it's drastically different than doing due diligence on a three-bedroom, two-bath bedroom, single-family home, right? I mean, there's just a lot more moving pieces, a lot more time involved with doing that. Uh, there's environmental studies that should be done and things like that. So, it's a lot harder to make that happen when you look at you know these bigger deals.
1: So, how does someone enter the the market? Because that's typically how most investors in the single-family business get started is they'll wholesale mm-hmm. to start getting their you know their experience and their feet wet and start learning what they don't know. How does one enter the the
0: mobile home market? Yeah, I mean I, I see a lot of guys that get into this business that started in single family homes that, you know, either they were fixing and flipping or maybe they're wholesaling but they they build up Cash that way. They they knew that they at some point they wanted to move their their money or their earnings into something that was more of a uh, of a passive income investment, something that was sustainable for them, rather than just wholesaling and, and doing deal after deal after deal after deal. They wanted to buy some property at some point in time, and so a lot of people got their start in single family homes, built up some cash reserves, and then went and bought you know a mobile home park or an apartment building. You know, so they have the money to put down. They get normal financing or owner financing, but they're putting a chunk of money down on it. I mean, it's not that you can't do deals like this, no money down, or or you can't come in and flip these types of properties. It's just not as common. And I wouldn't tell anyone to try to hang their hat on that business model if they want to get into this business. It'd be best trying to make money. Flipping houses is a proven concept, not necessarily easy to do, but there's a lot of education out there on how to do it and a lot of successful guys are already doing it so it's a model that a lot of people they can quickly adapt to and, and, and learn l- learn how to do it with a little bit of capital up front so build up your capital that way you are know, doing it using another means that is a little bit easier than trying to flip big commercial properties and so do it once you, you know, once you build up a big amount of cash turn around plop it down to something something that is you know more of a long term business play something for passive income so that's what we see that's pretty common i mean that's that's kind of what we did as well. I mean, even when my buying my apartments, um, back when I bought those, we didn't flip a lot of houses, but you know, we would sell when we needed more capital to buy more homes or to buy something else. And so we never tried to buy apartment buildings. No, no money down again, not that you can't, but we would always wait until we had that chunk, you know, a quarter million bucks that we could go buy a million dollar property just because it's, it's more sustainable. It's more common in that side of the business. So if I had, let's assume
1: for a second, I have a half million dollars to spend. It's just it just tearing me out mm-hmm. up uh, because I'm only making 2% at Bank of America. And that's not a really mm-hmm. good cash on cash return. Where where would I go? If I said, "Hey, I have this money. I want to I want to do this, but I don't know how to do it. I I don't want to waste 500 grand learning the wrong way." Are there people out there like yourself who show someone the ropes?
0: Yeah, there are in fact uh we're going to be launching. We don't have it launched yet, but we're going to be launching in about 2 months. Uh, I'm pu- I put together an academy just for that reason. You know, uh it's going to be called the Mobile Home Park Academy and there are other people out there that train on this topic. Not many. There are there are two guys that have been doing it for a long time. They offer like a 3-day boot camp and um they're very successful mobile home park investors. In fact, that's where I went when I first wanted to get into this business and get the education. I went to their 3-day boot camp and um what I found though is that in three days, it's really hard to learn this business. You know, it's it's you know, it's a crash course, but it's really hard to learn it well enough and be comfortable enough that you can go buy a million or $2 million asset and feel like you're going to be successful at doing that. And so it's kind of the reason we're putting together this academy. I, I get a lot of people through my own podcast that reach out to me that, you know, have an interest in this business. I want to learn it. And so we're basically pulling together all the systems and processes that we use within our own business on how we acquire how we find deals how we acquire them how we get the funding for them how we manage them operate them hire managers fire managers you know everything from a to z we're putting together in an academy and so we're going to be doing that, It's going to be, a, but it's going to be a long-term type thing. It's not a three-day boot camp. It's like a six-month intensive mm-hmm. academy. Uh, it's a long process, but the goal is to find those that actually have the wherewithal to get into this business, not those that are looking to get in that have $10 to their name, but those that have some money to get into this business and teach them the right way, to, to purchase their first park or their second park and, you know, make money by doing that. And, uh, but, but, but learn it without making the same mistakes that not necessarily that I made, I didn't make mistakes. I brought a mentor in that had some experience in his business before he bought the first park. But I see a lot of guys that buy the wrong park and it's pretty easy to buy the wrong park because there's a lot of duds out there, just like there are single family sure. homes. I mean, you're in this business and there there's duds that you just, it doesn't matter if the price is right. Run, you know, it's it's not worth the headache. And making a mistake on a forty thousand dollar house is different than making a mistake on a on a on a million dollar property. So they can contact me if they have questions about this business. I mean, before we come out this cat, before we come out the academy, if they have general questions about the business or just want to pick my brain a little bit, I make myself readily available to those that have an interest into this business and no ulterior motives or anything like that. I mean, I just I enjoy talking about it. I enjoy. You know, teaching others about the business. So they can always reach out to me directly at my email. It's Kevin at com, And I'd be more than happy to answer any you know general questions they have and, and uh, maybe give them some guidance if they need it.
1: And, and we're going to post your information on the podcast as well. So anybody out there that okay. needs to get a hold of you, they should be able to find you through that. They can call us or I'm sure Google you. Yep. So what about the guy or the gal who has a half million dollars sitting in the bank earning 2%? They like the idea of owning a, a park but they don't want to own the park all by themselves. Mm-hmm. Do you play in the in the JV field at all?
0: We do. We do. In fact, the uh, last deal we did, we JV'd with a guy I met through my podcast, you know, a year and a half ago. And then we also have, we have two different prongs of our business. We have a, a real estate fund set up, which is a fund that's solely for accredited investors. So for those that are, Maybe they're business owners or professionals and they have no interest in necessarily being in the business. They want to diversify and they want to own parks, but don't necessarily want to know the operational side of the parks. And so we have that fund set up for those types of individuals. And then we also do joint ventures like on a one-off basis if we, if we have a park that doesn't necessarily fit in our fund parameters. You know, we're, we're open minded to working with investors that have an interest in the business that maybe want to they want to dive in, but they don't want to do it solo. Mm-hmm. And so we'll look at you know teaming up and partnering with those joint venture type partners. And like I said, we just did one. The park that we bought in Virginia was done just that way. It was a joint venture relationship, and it's, it's gone quite well. In fact, um, the, the two of us are probably looking at buying other parks together now. Yeah. Uh,
1: I so, can see the advantages yeah. of doing that, especially in the beginning. Because we just don't mm-hmm. know what we don't know. I mean, it's Absolutely. it's one thing knowing that you don't know something, but it's a whole different story when you don't know what you don't know. And so, mm-hmm. you know, having someone's experience and, and coattails to write to on would be pretty good for most people. Some people, you know, they're not partner material. So I get that too. Mm-hmm. What haven't we talked about that you'd like to share with the audience? Yeah, you
0: know, I, I don't know, Michael. I mean, just... I'd say the, the the best thing is that if someone has an interest in this business, as with any business, whether they're going to get into doing single family like you do, or they're going to get into apartment buildings or mobile home parks, is just take the time to get the education and take the time to network with others that are in the business that are successful at it already. Not that they're just in theory successful, but that actually own property and have some proven success. You know, don't. Don't be anxious to just go buy something because you just want to, you need to, you know, you feel like you need to get your foot in the water and just dive in, but you also don't want to have that analysis by paralysis as well. But, you know, just make sure that you get the education and be patient about it because there's a lot of good deals out there, but there's a lot of duds as well. And I just, you know, as you know, networking is everything in this business. The people, you know, are the people that help you grow and take the time to know who those people are and align yourselves with those that are professionals that are transparent, that are willing to lend a hand and help out. And, uh, only then, once you have that network of people and you feel, feel comfortable, buy that first property. You know, because that first property could be your last property if you bought the wrong one. Especially when, again, when you're talking, if you're talking about the guy that has half a million bucks sitting in Bank of America account, he's getting 2% on Probably not even getting 2% on He's probably getting less than a percent, but he wants to buy a park. He goes out and buys a $2 million park. It's his first park, but yet, After he buys it, he realizes that there's infrastructure problems, there's environmental issues and things like that, things that could have easily been identified by either teaming up with the right person that had the knowledge or just gaining knowledge himself first. Um, Now he's in a debt of a deal that is worth less than what he paid for. it. He's got a half a million bucks tied up, and now he's got a headache on his hands. So just get the education. That's the best way I can put it. Just get the education.
1: Yeah, I can can see that, that the trap of being so emotionally tied to something. Could cost someone a a lot of money. So just the idea of getting the education or having someone who will say, "I am going to raise rent. I am going to make sure that the the tenants pay the late fees. I'm going to evict if they don't." You know, just someone that that is steadfast to a system where most people, Mm -hmm. you know, when they buy something, they're so emotionally attached to it, and then they become emotionally attached to the people that are renting from them that yeah. they have a, a hard time sometimes making those business decisions that need to be made.
0: That is the gold. that's the golden sword in the heart of a landlord is when they get attached to the people that are in their properties or that, you know, that, and that's why self-managing is just a big no-no because if you're a, if you're a nice person, I mean, if you have a big heart, like I, I consider myself a nice person with a big heart and I, I mean, I've made a mistake before. In fact, I've got a property now I'm selling it. It's the only property that I own that I have any involvement personally, and it 's only because on that same it 's an apartment building, but there 's an office building on the same property, and so I just since I ran my business out of that office, I figured I'd just manage the apartment building as well because I was like yeah, not that big of a deal, and it became a headache you know i, I haven't i haven 't maximized all the value I could out of that property because I, I didn't become emotionally attached to the residents that are there, but I saw them each and every day. They saw me. They said hello to me, and you know. So now there's this personal attachment there, and that I'm the mean guy now. If I raise rent to twenty five bucks or thirty bucks, or evict someone because they lost their job, and and don't listen to their sob story, you know. And everyone's got a sob story, but when you separate yourself from that, like we we have on site managers in every one of these parks. I never ever meet a resident. They don't know who I am. They don't even if I'm in the park. They think I'm just you know another person that works for the company. I'm not the owner. But you separate yourselves from having that emotional attachment, and it's just. It's, and, and same with the manager. The manager can enforce the rules because if she says – he or she says, hey, I don't make the rules. It's the boss. Right. I'm just enforcing that.
1: I think that that statement is, should be a takeaway for a lot of people. Even if you don't have a manager, let's be a third-person manager like me. Uh, describe Absolutely. yourself as somebody – you know, the, the owner as somebody else to your, um, your tenant because the moment you are first person with that that individual, it's very difficult when there is an issue. When you have to hide your car because, you know, when you park in front of the building because you don't want the tenants to destroy it, then you know you have an emotional tie to it.
0: Yeah. (laughs) I've never had that issue, thank God. I haven't had any kind of damage done to my personal items due to a irate tenant, but, uh, you know, I try to keep myself away from that ever happening. Yeah, that's not fun.
1: (laughs) Well, I've enjoyed it. I've learned a lot, and now I'm going to change my opinion about mobile home parks and mobile homes because being a guy who was raised in a trailer – I don't know if you've ever lived in a trailer, but it's it's. I have it not. Is, I, I have I'm not going to suggest anybody do that um, unless you are in Carpinteria and you want to see the ocean every day. Then there's a four hundred thousand dollar one down there.
0: Is that the park down in uh in the Malibu area? Is that the one you're no, talking about? No, there's one
1: in Carpinteria, which is like between Ventura yeah. and Santa Barbara. Crazy expensive.
0: I know there's a park in Malibu that's on the coast. And it's the most expensive mobile home park or the most expensive mobile home lot rents in the, in the world. I mean, you know, I think the lot rents in there, are, you know, $2,500 a month or something like that. It's not more, but, but, but some of the homes sell for, yeah, I mean, some of the homes sell for four dollars five, six, $700,000 in their trailers, but they, they don't look like trailers though. They, I mean, on the inside, I mean, they are fully decked out and they do not look like mobile homes
1: anymore. I hope I'm not setting you up for a bad question. There's something about mobile homes and FHA way back in the day where if you bought a mobile home that was pre-FHA, that the home could be taken all the way down to the frame and rebuilt without new code issues. Do you know anything about that?
0: I don't know about how, how that revolves around code issues regarding rebuilding the home. I can tell you that if it is a pre-HUD home, you know something that was built before the HUD put their stamp of approval on it, that it cannot be – legally moved. Oh. So if it's sitting on a, like we have some parks that have older homes like that, older than 1978, and they legally cannot be moved. Um, I mean, you might find someone that would come and move it, but they legally can't be uh, towed down a road or, or 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 set somewhere else. Now, I don't know how that, we've never actually taken some, it's not even cost effective if you ever have to take something down to the frame to rebuild it. So I don't know how that rule applies to rebuilding. Because yeah. um, if you got to do that much work to it, you're better off just yanking it out and getting something, another used trailer and bringing it in. If it's that bad to where you've got to take it down to the frame.
1: There's something in my past. I remember talking to an individual that that was his business model and he would buy these things and do something with them because for him, there's an advantage to an old frame and I'd love to remember huh. the, the conversation, but it, I
0: mean, I'd love to know that business too, because it sounds like a losing business proposition unless he was, yeah. Yeah. I mean, cause to rebuild it back into a mobile home, it's still a mobile home that is old and it's small, you know, and, yeah. uh, and you're talking a lot. I mean, it's just as expensive to rehab a mobile home as it is a single family home. And so when you look at a, a mobile home, that's a 1977 trailer, even if it was in good condition today, it's still not worth more than a, a couple thousand bucks, yeah. you know, so and you ne- it's never going to be worth more than a couple thousand bucks. Even if you turn it into something that's beautiful and pretty, it's still, at the end of the day, a 1977 mobile home. Maybe it's worth six now, but you just paid 12 grand to turn it into a $6,000 trailer. You never get your money back out of it. It's just like a car. It's like a used car. And they never become collectibles. So it's not like an old collectible car that gains value. It's just like an old dilapidated car that just loses value (laughs) as it gets older.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm always amazed. You know, one question I didn't ask, it just came to mind. Do you Mm -hmm. allow folks to buy the mobile home and rent it but still pay you a rent fee on your lot?
0: Yes. Yes, we do. But we do require that their tenants have to go through our qualification process. Okay. So they cannot just go ahead and rent to any tenant that they want to. They have to go through our, our normal qualification process. Right. So that means background checks, eviction. So we give basically give the, we, we just sold a unit yesterday, actually one of our parks for cash to a, a local investor that is going to rehab it. And then, you know, obviously keep it there and, and use it as a rental. And so, I gave her a list of the qualifications that we expect from every resident. That way, when they're doing their prospecting for new tenants to fill that place, they can go ahead and just get that out there in the open that, hey, you've got to pass all these items here. If you have proofs, evictions, felonies, yada, yada, yada just, you know, that disqualifies you. And so when the person finally does come to them and wants to do an application, they'll actually do it through our manager and our manager will run the background check and everything. So, yeah, but I, I love investors like that. I mean, I, in fact, we've got some more homes for sale for cash and we've got a bunch of investors looking at them. I will sell to an investor all day, every day, if their intent is to keep the home in the community and if their intent is to follow our rules with regards to qualifying their tenants.
1: Right. I, I was thinking when you mentioned a couple thousand that there is a, there are a couple parks in my city, that seems expensive for the homes that are there. Mm-hmm. This opens the door for someone who wants to be, I guess, an investor with a low dollar investment. So I'm not so certain the, the rate of return on that's going to be that yeah. great. But I guess it's all relative, right? It's the amount of money that you've put
0: into it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, we have, that investor that bought that home yesterday. She works at you know uh, the local Ford dealership. She probably makes like 45 grand a year. She owns two other trailers uh, in in the town in different communities, and so she's just building this little portfolio of rental trailers. You know, so for her it works. It's a low low dollar amount to get involved as a real estate investor, and hopefully she'll create some good cash flow spread. I don't like the business model of buying trailers just as rentals, especially when they're in a park, because now she's at our mercy, right? I mean, she's at our mercy. She owns the, the trailer there, but we control the lot rents, and her, her profit is the spread from what she can, from what the market rents are. To what our lot rent is
1: very similar to a sandwich lease.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's not that we're we'll never push our rents above what the market is. I mean, we're not we're not looking to do that. But still, like you you lose some control being the investor when you've got a a mobile home in a park. You can make money, but you're at someone else's mercy. Right. And I don't like that. I like being in full control. Yep, me too. I appreciate the
1: opportunity to chat with you today.
0: Yeah, Michael, it's been a lot of fun. been a lot of fun. Thanks for having me on the show. I really appreciate it.
1: And you have a wonderful day. I'm going to pick your brain on another time about your fun that you put together. That sounds like an amazing topic to discuss for, for 30, 45 minutes. So I'm sure we'll talk soon. Anytime, bud. Just give me a shout. Well, that was exciting. I've got to say that I may have changed my opinion about mobile homes after listening to Kevin talk about it. And I tell you what, it seems fascinating to me, especially if you have a reserve already created and you want a pretty good rate of return on that. It seems like what the market that he's in and the industries he's in can produce some some pretty good returns. I like the idea, I don't know if you guys caught it, but I like the idea of the systemization that he has in place and the non-emotional systemization that he has in place, which I think is a key component to success in most all business. and Because we can't be emotionally tied to what somebody else is doing or what our business is doing. We we have to be doing and and be in business and run our business based upon systems and numbers and what those numbers produce for us. You know the saying, numbers don't lie. And it, it was just fascinating to listen to Kevin chat about the mobile home park industry and uh, like we said during the show, if, if any of you folks want to get a hold of him, just look on the um, the site under his podcast or his episode and and find him that way if you need to chat with him some more. And I, I'm going to try to have him on again and talk to him about his fund he created. That sounds fascinating to me too. I got to say, I hope you guys are enjoying these shows as much as I am because I'm having a blast learning and talking to people in the industry and different business and mind frames and and how they arrived at their success. And I, it's just inspiring to know that there are other like-minded people out in our world that are just kicking butt. So I'm enjoying it. I hope you are too. Until next time, take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Michael Quirrell's Real Estate Show. Get more info and stay in touch at michaelquirrells.com.